Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening. My name is Ricky Verdet, and I'm the director of LFC Cities, which I run together with uh, Philip Roder and uh, many of the colleagues from LSE Cities and the Urban Age program are here. Uh, I'm delighted you made it, and I hope you noticed that we created a bit of a, an event outside to uh, make sure that the controversial speech by uh, Hashim wouldn't go unnoticed. Now, because I was called to come here rapidly, I left my introductory notes in my office So for Hashim. But I have to say, of all the people in the world who I have the pleasure of introducing. With Hashim, that's actually not a problem. Uh, in many ways, he and I go back for more than 22 years, we just discovered, uh, when uh, I was, of course, in my teens, uh, but Hashim was not even born, practically. Uh, and we were working together at the Chicago Institute for Architecture and Urbanism. And literally, this young uh, researcher from uh, Harvard, from the Graduate School of Design, who more or less just arrived from uh, Beirut, even though he'd studied at Rhode Island, was clearly the most exciting and intelligent person uh, we were able to engage with. I really mean it. It was a wonderful uh, moment to meet amongst the great Chicago community uh, a Mediterranean soulmate. I was uh, brought up in Rome. I'm half Italian. And I think that um, cultural uh, connection the two sides of the Mediterranean, Rome looking south and Beirut looking north over the same stretch of water, has probably brought us together in more ways than we ever have realized. And of course, that issue of uh, uh, talking about a physical entity, in this case the Mediterranean, two different cities, Rome, uh, Beirut, uh, the notion of uh, studying the environment in all senses, and not just in terms of uh, the sustainable side, but very much the cultural side, is very much one of the themes that has driven uh, Hashim's work from his PhD days uh, onwards. In fact, Hashim became um, in, and I don't remember the date, but about 10 years ago, maybe, the Aga Khan Professor. Uh, but it's a much longer title, which I looked at today. Uh, and it's the Aga Khan Professor in Landscape, Architecture, and Urbanism in Muslim countries? Societies. Right, societies. Um, and it is an important um, appointment at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard to have someone who actually is tasked at taking for, forward the research uh, at this sort of interdisciplinary level and multicultural level. And I think Hashim is fantastically placed to do that. Uh, he's worked as a, uh, a theorist. He's written several books from everything from Le Corbusier to Joyce Louis, Louis Sert to Beirut, the city he was brought up in. Uh, he's a really prolific educator. Uh, if you look at the things he's been teaching at Harvard, from theory to uh, design studios, uh, it is really quite extraordinary. Uh, but I think most importantly for the discourse and also the work that you're, what you're going to talk about today, he's a, pr a very active um, designer and a practitioner. And probably of his generation, he's one of the few um, architects who's tried to really take the reading of cultural geography and embed it into the design of the work that he's doing on both in the States uh, and uh, now progressively in uh, Lebanon. In fact, he now has set up an office not just in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but also in Beirut itself. Um, I was in Beirut for uh, a week at uh, Easter with my wife, who was also uh, was brought up in uh, Lebanon, 
and saw the most extraordinary city, which is going to be unfolded, I think, before our eyes by, uh, by Hashim. And I went to Tyre, this great Phoenician city in the south of the country, devastated by recent political events, and only read when I came back that one of the most beautiful projects by Hashim, which is um, uh, effectively new housing for fishermen, uh, in the city was around the corner from where I'd been. So unfortunately, I didn't see it, but I've seen photographs, and perhaps you'll talk about it. Now, Hashim's um, connections to what we do at the LSEs uh, and the Urban Age uh, is very much something he's going to talk about through his work on Beirut, but really connects, as I've already alluded to, the notion of understanding sort of the culture of place in its physical sense, but also in its social sense and relating that to the making of places, of buildings and environments. Uh, he's participated in many of our conferences uh, at the Urban Age, most recently uh, in Istanbul, where he talked about the relationship between a city and Mediterraneanity. And I think that's something which we'll come back to. And I think that's a fascinating way to uh, engage in the, concept, in, in, in the notion and in the practice uh, of design. But in our very first um, Urban Age conference, now uh, five years ago in New York, uh, I will not only never forget, because I steal it all the time as if it was a great original thought of mine, where Hashim talked about the notion that if you design buildings, you need to design them to be flexible. This is something that is perhaps common. But then introduced the notion of resilience, that the environment has to be able to adapt to changing needs, of course, of human beings, of different cultures. <coughs> And I think this notion of resilience very much characterizes actually Hashim's uh, uh, career him, uh, in, in, in the different disciplines. It's not easy to do well in three different fields, but also in helping us understand how cities and buildings work. So given that uh, sort of introduction to a person I really find, consider a friend uh, and um, a fellow traveler, would you welcome Hashim Sarkis? Have a beard, you will see me blushing a little bit. Uh, Ricky is not only generous in his introduction, but is also intellectually very generous. Has uh, prodded me several times to say, What can you say about Istanbul? What can you say about Beirut? And it is with that prodding in mind that I come today uh, carrying a few new thoughts about Beirut, a city that I have lived in, worked on quite a bit and uh, over the past few years have stopped thinking about it, but somehow at Ricky's Prodding gone back to it and uh, have seen quite a few different things than I had initially seen, and uh, I would like to share them with you as a kind of outline of a, a research project that hopefully uh, you would be uh, able to engage me on and uh, interrogate me the way that you did so uh, actively this afternoon uh, at the master's group. Let me get started. Uh, before I start, how do I move the slides forward? With this guy? Uh, just with the arrow. With the arrow forward. Perfect. On February 12, 2005, a yellow balloon was launched into the sky of Beirut. It was a tethered helium balloon brought from France where the prototype, located in Parc Citroën, was a popular and commercial success. More in line with the Beirut version of the balloon, 
the one in the middle. Beirut was placed at the edge of the city's downtown, a large construction site of about one and a half million square meters, where visitors would be able to go up 300 meters above sea level, monitor the progress of the city's transformation, and project their own images onto this large void. The site installation consisted of a folded ground plane, folded in order to solve the problem of a diagonally sloping ground and to house waiting area, a restaurant, game rooms, which would otherwise encumber the operations of the balloon. The whole structure was made out of concrete, but it was meant to be temporary. Concrete remains till today the cheapest material uh, to build in Lebanon, and in many ways, accordingly, the most temporary. It was located on one of those parcels that had been cleared and amplified to absorb large-scale towers at the edge of the downtown. Many of the adjacent sites had also been leased for entertainment uses and filled with activities like cycling, horseback riding, and go-karts. In this case, it was a balloon. But the idea I advanced as architect of the project was to keep the space clear and open, like the surroundings, for different possibilities of use as a public space, and also in order not to clutter it with themes and scenographies. These multiple and intersecting grounds, layers of ground planes, multiplied these possibilities. In the office, we used to refer to it as that French pastry called the millefeuille, uh, just as a way of registering the multiplicity of grounds. Two days after the launch, on February 14, 2005, and at 300 horizontal meters from the balloon, Lebanon's former Prime Minister, Rafiq Hariri, and the leader of an opposition movement against the Syrian hegemony and military presence, was assassinated in a massive explosion that ripped through his shielded car and scorched a deep crater in the street, killing, along the way, 21 people, including several passers-by, bodyguards, and an old friend, Basil Fulaihan, the former Minister of Economics. The public outcry and massive demonstrations led to the withdrawal of the Syrians from Lebanon after 18 years of control. Several assassinations followed, including one of Samir Osir, a journalist and chronicler of Beirut's history. An international tribunal has been formed to gather evidence and to identify and try the assassins. Since then, the country has been polarized into a group favoring the pursuit of justice, even if Syria is implicated, and another group favoring a realpolitik of sorts towards Syria and towards the fragile regional balance. The rest is yet to become history. Immediately after the assassination, however, several apocryphal accounts linked the balloon to the crime. One story told of a detonating device found in the balloon. Another claimed that the assassins took flight in the balloon, neglecting the glaring fact, the glaringly yellow fact, that it was still there, tied to the ground. <coughs> Compared to its impact on the country, the actual impact of the explosion on the balloon was rather minimal. Had it not been in mid-air on a test run at the very moment of the explosion, it would have no doubt exploded itself. And this is a picture of one of the operators of the balloon who's trained as a mountain climber. Uh, fixing the balloon after a leak was found caused by a shrapnel from the explosion. For a month after the assassination, the balloon was grounded until the criminal investigations and the state of emergency in the city were over. During that period, it served as a marker for the crowds that spontaneously gathered around it, around the site of the assassination, uh, to walk from there to Martyr Square, where Hariri was buried. The balloon also appeared on the cover of a novel about that period, where it symbolized a certain unbearable lightness in the face of the weightiness of the events. Putting aside these 
circumstantial and conspiratorial links. A happy helium balloon on a patch of grass in the city center would appear to be the perfect antithesis to the act that it witnessed. The contrast between the two recounts yet another myth, equally apocryphal about Beirut's constant cycle between good times and violence. The myth goes that Beirut has been condemned to destruction because it transgressed. It overindulged in hedonism and in excess. This picture circulated in the international media uh, to represent to the international media what it wanted to see in Beirut, which is this contrast. This is not Beirut's only curse. A structural fault exists in the country's composition and geographic location. Ethnically divided between Christian and Muslim, geographically located between the Mediterranean and Arabia. This is yet another myth. But there is hardly any city that does not explain its morphogenesis without resorting to an in-between geopolitical status. But here in Beirut, this very dichotomy provides the city with its raison d'etre and with its raison de ne pas être. But is there anything to say about Beirut outside these exceptional conditions? Is it possible to speak of a city that has come to embody disaster and division without talking about disaster and division? Is it possible to chart out a normal path for Beirut, as it were? The curse of exception makes it impossible to learn from Beirut, let alone from any other place. Understandably, ultra-theoretical practices have prevailed in the explanation of Beirut's fate. These practices reject any structural explanation of events in, face, in favor of the circumstantial. An incident could only be explained by linking it to another incident. It is not their fault, they say. Beirut itself generates unstructured incidents. Precariousness has been used to explain everything, from the social situation to the chaos of the built environment. But this approach is neither reassuring nor is it helpful. You can arrive at that very conclusion by simply uttering the word Beirut. Some other interpretations have read this, these polar extremes as exaggerations of modern urban pathologies. For example, science fiction writer J.G. Ballard described Beirut in his science fiction story called War Fever as the only place on a perpetually peaceful earth that was deliberately kept at war by the United Nations as a laboratory for studying violent impulses in human beings. Now, even when this reading situates Beirut on top of the world as its pressure valve, it somehow essentializes the connection between violence and place in a manner that is not productive, at least not for Beirut. For that, I would like to get off this part of interpretations of Beirut, a part that I have taken myself in previous writings, and move away from self-fulfilling particularities in order to extract logics of the production of the architecture and the physical spaces of the city from its building practices, in vivo as it were. This is slightly different from the Harvey or Lefebvre notion of spatial production, because as much as I believe that the social is indelibly linked to space, I also believe that space is constitutive of the social, not simply shaped by it, and that the physical environment exudes its own desirability. By production of space here, I mean how architects and urban planners make buildings and public spaces, but also how these practices are linked to other spatial actions in the city, such as owning property, destroying it, parking a car, and putting up a street sign. Now, questions of ethnicity and violence will and may very well come up but only insofar as they appear on the table of the architect, as he or she makes decisions about the forms of the city. I will therefore be concentrating on what makes it to this table, 
on the real estate, urban design, legal, iconographic, and stylistic practices, working my way from the balloon project out to explicate the logics of these practices and their overlaps. Admittedly, all of these practices do come themselves with strong cultural and ideological baggage, but they also generate their own dynamics. These practices and the forms they generate may turn out to produce a sense of similarity, I would even say sameness, with other cities around the world. This may teach us more poignant lessons about contemporary urbanism than the specificities of Beirut, but let me not get ahead of myself. In speaking about the Beirut normal, I am also forging continuity between the normal and the pathological, following Michel Foucault, following Georges Canguillen. I am after identifying the means by which a city constantly revises its norms to deal with the environmental inadequacies it constantly confronts. I stop at Canguillen for a moment longer because his normal pathological distinction invites a bodily metaphor of the city, which I hope to resist. Instead, I propose to examine the city through the specificity of its objects and spaces, but as quasi-objects, as Bruno Latour describes them, as they expose their links to networks and urban production. Again here, let me not rush to conclusions and work my way from the architecture, from the balloon, and out to the When the client was given the choice between two adjacent sites, this and that, he chose the lower, which was further away from the highway exit, but more accessible from the city's hotels, and less likely to be sold than the higher. He was, in effect, buying time. The site lies in the heart of Beirut's glittering hotel district of the 1950s. It was and 60s. It was also the site of a major battle of the 1975 civil war. Once the war stopped, the site was included in the master plan of Solidaire, the real estate company in charge of the reconstruction of downtown Beirut. Some of the hotels outside the Solidaire boundary, like the Holiday Inn designed by Andrei Wojcicki and the Saint Georges we saw in the previous picture, remain bullet-ridden and they stand as wanting lessons, according to Solidaire supporters, of what could have happened to the downtown had Solidaire not been created. In a way, all of this is the daunting lesson, according to Solidaire. To empower Solidaire, special legal and fiscal mechanisms were created. Former property owners in the old downtown became shareholders in this private real estate company charged with developing and executing a reconstruction plan. All this has been labeled special and unique, but historically, as it turns out, it falls in a consistent and long pattern. A major dynamic in urban development in Lebanon is based on the fact that the value of the land is often much higher than the value of the buildings that sit upon it. While location and size, as is often the case, do figure prominently in the evaluation of property, the historical value of the building does not contribute as much to the assessment of the property. Added to that, and given a weak mortgage market, and relatively low property taxes, almost inexistent. Investment and speculation in real estate can continue even if the demand is not high. Real estate still provides the most secure sector of, for investment, in spite of a vacancy rate that sometimes reaches about 30%, particularly in high luxury neighborhoods. With zoning and the building code that gets constantly revised in order to increase exploitation in different ways, it is difficult to imagine how older, historically significant buildings can withstand the pressures of speculation. This logic has shaped Beirut for a long time. 
There's an image of downtown Beirut in the 18, the intramural Beirut in the 1840s. And as a sort of imagined Orientalist perspective view of the city with the mountain behind it and the Mediterranean in front. In his three-volume historical novel, Beirut World City, Rabia Jaber recounts the story of the city's transformation through a family saga stretching between 1830 and 1860, the period when Beirut was taken up by Ibrahim Basha of Egypt as a base for his insurgents against the Ottomans, and when the city turned away from serving as the border station between Tripoli and Sidon, provinces to becoming its own center. The urban transformations in the city were immense and erased much of the medieval residues, including the city walls. Upon their return in 1840, the Ottomans reaffirmed their presence by further clearings as part of the effort to modernize the city's infrastructure and edify their imperial presence. The Ottomans did not have time to fill the clearings that they had created. These are some of the clearings by the Ottomans left uh, in 1915. But it was the French mandate which from 1918 to 1943 finished the job and created new sites for the city's expansion. Ultimately, the demographic and congestion pressures on the newly created capital city that vacated, uh, vacated the downtown in the 1960s towards new commercial centers at the fringes. <coughs> Several proposals for clearing and rebuilding the downtown were entertained during this period, supported by justifications not dissimilar to those of urban renewal everywhere else in the world, but also by the geographic constraints to growth in the shape of the mountains behind and the Mediterranean in front. <clears throat> this condition Beirut shares with many Mediterranean cities. It was the 1975 to 1990 civil war that ultimately destroyed the center and brought it back into the cycles of real estate clear. The Solidaire plan for 4.7 million square meters to of built up area in downtown Beirut should be understood within this pattern. Now just as a, an image to show you the degree of transformation of downtown Beirut and the speed at which things change, I just took out this series of images of plans of Martyr Square, the main square in Beirut, to show you how drastically not only did the city grow around it, but how drastically it changed. And even though it's the commemorative space of the city, what is commemorated constantly changes and the character of the public space is always up for grabs. So you can imagine that kind of change happening in a public space here in London. And what pace of negotiation and time it takes in order for it to change a little. And this is the central space of downtown Beirut. Outside of Solidaire, and this is just the downtown area today in relation to the rest of the city. Obviously more construction is happening here, but this is the size of the clearing that was created and the landfill to couple it in order to increase real estate value. Outside of Solidaire, the same pattern occurs, but at a smaller scale. Perhaps with the recent reconstruction of the southern suburbs after the Israeli bombing in 2006, which comes close to the size of the downtown. Buildings dating back from the early 1950s and 60s, such as these, are routinely torn down and replaced by parking lots as owners play a waiting game with prospective developers. These clearings serve as development indices, particularly in neighborhoods like Ras Beirut and Ashrafiyye, this is Ashrafiyye, where competing claims and scenarios for development, sorry, this is Ras Beirut, this is Spears Street, for development help increase the value of the vacated property, as well as the property around it. Just to show you, if you look at this Google map image, 
this is the amount of parking clearing that has been deliberately created by owners of the property. First, to create parking. Parking is needed. But second, in order to mark the fact that this property is available. So if you own this property back here, the value of your property will increase by speculation. And the developer is likely to buy these two or these two in order to make the development work. And there's always this kind of negotiation of waiting. But by making the first clearing, you've already effectively created an atmosphere for speculation that would generate buildings of that scale to replace the older family. This is very much the pattern that is for, that's going on today in terms of the development of the city. And probably much more construction is going on outside of downtown than downtown following these patterns, but voids at a smaller scale. <coughs> in 2007, less than two years after the balloon was launched, and despite the quagmire following the Israeli bombing, Solidaire sold the parcel, the balloon parcel, to Dubai, to a Dubai-based bank. At that point, investors from the Arabian Gulf were so confident in the Gulf model, they were developing projects in such high-risk places as Somalia, Sudan, and Lebanon. The balloon, at dawn, was briskly moved to a site nearby, but the continuing political tensions forced the owner to eventually deflate it and send it to the Gulf, where it is still sitting, folded somewhere inside a container, waiting for the Gulf economy to come around. The contractor who built the balloon project was hired to destroy it. He sent me these pictures taken with a rather sadistic cell phone. <laughs> Ironically, and because of the Gulf recession, the site remains fenced off and empty till today, while Beirut is going through another unprecedented construction boom. I had not anticipated that the clearing I worked to maintain could itself be cleared. Could this speculative approach in real estate then be elevated to an aesthetic without it imagining its own inevitable destruction? Could the constant reprojection of Beirut become an overture rather than a frustration for architects? How can we make firm steps into this Heracletian river that keeps changing? The balloon landing part was designed to be a park. For the duration of its short life, it was a direct response to one of Beirut's endemic problems, the lack of public space. <coughs> and for a brief moment of time, it did serve as waiting areas, as a place where parties could be thrown for kids. So for a brief moment, it worked. In the downtown area today, a large park on the edge of the city appears more like an afterthought waiting to be realized. Judging by the progress of the developments in the downtown, most of the buildings are going up, but most of the public spaces are not there yet. Those that are look like gigantic planters. This was not the intention behind the much celebrated and contested master plan, but somehow it slipped back into conventional practices. No doubt, public space requires heavy investment on the part of the public sector. In Lebanon, the sector may be highly bureaucratized and sophisticated in its procedures, almost Byzantine, but financially it is rather poor. In contrast, Solidaire is excessively rich. So in this particular case, we may need another explanation for the weakening of the public dimension of the plan. I would like to suggest that it could be found in a historical moment, in a moment of transition between the first proposed plan for the city of 1991 and the second one, both authored by Darul Handasa, uh, and between what I'm calling the articulation and the regulation that we exercise in urban design. 
Let me explain briefly the story of the shift between the first plan and the second plan. The first plan was revealed in 1991. 1991, you have to remember, is the year of the Oslo Accord, or around the Oslo Accord, and uh, the year when Hariri came back into Lebanon from Saudi Arabia with projects of reconciliation, but also projects for the reconstruction of the city. The proposal was to create a private uh, real estate holding company to liquefy the terrain and give everybody shares, but also to build this. There was a vehement opposition to this plan because, for one reason, given the suppression of political debate, urban design became the place by which people could voice their opposition to what was going on. Secondly, the plan was seen as being highly articulate, highly specific, imposing uh, too many aesthetic uh, styles on the Lebanese architects, and the architects and the engineers were the most uh, critical of it. Uh, a kind of Mediterranean brick roof, uh, pieces like the World Trade Center, uh, exclusive island, uh, canals. It looked almost like it was what the Lebanese brought back with them from their diaspora in terms of images and postcards of international cities that they had lived in during the war. But it was really the specificity of the plan that people rejected. They did not want their public spaces to be dictated through a master plan. Hariri and Solidaire ingeniously withdrew the plan and proposed this. And it was literally almost a transition from a French approach to urban planning to an Anglo-Saxon one, particularly an <coughs> American one, where instead of highly articulated public spaces, the public spaces were left blank, open for potential uh, competitions, but their definition and shape would be ultimately defined by, by regulations like these ones, street alignments, building heights, that were never imagined in any perspectives like these, and deferred to the architects to build them, to propose them. Now this process of deferral, one would expect, would be respected in Solidaire proper. But even in Solidaire today, a public space such as this one, which has been seen as one that would be preserved in the master plan, has been drastically tra transformed by the reshuffling of built-up area in order to include a huge tower that would loom over this public space because the developer wanted that. So Solidaire's practices ultimately are not very promising in regards to the deferral being respected. The best of urban decisions are therefore deferred to the architects of adjacent buildings, a deferral which is medi mediated by another level of regulation, which is that of zoning and the building code. But the practices in downtown are not promising in this regard. Most of the regulated rights of way, for example, just through a parcel <coughs> like this one, have been turned into interior corridors that close with the buildings at 5 p.m. This set of regulations proves to have its own separate logic <coughs> that most often work against the collective logic of a master plan. Current practices aside, there must be a latent potential in this act of deferral of urban decisions to individual architectural acts, to quasi-objects that imagine the city from within their bounds, that yield some of their autonomy without losing their specificity. Ultimately, however, many of these are reverting too much to their own autonomy and not enough to their specificity. So if it is being deferred from articulation to regulation, let us chase the regulation down the road. Deferring the creation and preservation of the public realm of the city to the building code and to the private sector 
creates another set of challenges. Mainly, one, writing a code that would do so, and secondly, implementing this code. Now, contrary to common wisdom, in Lebanon everybody says nobody follows the rules, I would like to argue that the code itself is the main challenge, not its implementation. People tend to follow the code more than necessary, I think. On the side of the balloon, just to give you an example about where the code is affecting the thinking about the urban spaces. <coughs> On the side of the balloon, there is a 9 meter drop between the highest point of the side and the lowest point. We try to address this difference not by flattening the terrain, which is a common practice in Beirut, but by lifting the bottom up, like to become like a mat, to become equivalent in height to the highest point, and to tuck the embers and cafe underneath. The slope is maintained inside the platform and used to magnify the ascent towards the balloon. This slope is prevalent in most of Beirut. The city is built between, this is the diagram showing how the balloon was, the balloon site was developed. Now the slope that happens on the side of the balloon is prevalent in most of Beirut. There is a nine meter ridge that runs the length of the city in its face towards the north. The city is actually itself built between two hills, Ashrafi on the east and the Saitbi hill to the west, and a valley which opens up towards downtown Beirut uh, runs between them, which is a dry riverbed. And that nine meter ridge runs this way, the site itself being somewhere. Now, the building code of Lebanon, this is a view of how the slope was incorporated inside the project. <coughs> Sorry. Okay. The building code of Lebanon, however, does not take topography into account when assessing the height, axis, or overall relationship between building and site. The code is written for a flat terrain. It actually encourages flattening the terrain in order to maximize exploitation. It also discourages continuity between building and landscape. For us to get the building to be embedded in landscape, we had to ask for serious exception. Now, the treatment of topography generates many peculiar conditions, down to the smallest details, as you know very well when you go to countryside uh, developments on hills. Over time, the changes have been applied to the building code to neutralize the terrain, nullifying an important link that the city, any city, maintains with its context, the link of topography. Let me dwell on this a little bit longer. After Kenneth Frampton's critical regionalism, topography has acquired a responsibility towards local culture, perhaps more than any of the other attributes of site. Highlighting topography, the specificity of place against the universality of the horizontal plane of modern architecture, expresses, according to Frampton, a critical awareness and resistance to the neutralization of place by globalization. Beirut does not seem to mind this neutralization. Just to give you an example, when Rafael Moneo was designing the souks of Beirut to replace the old souks, the commercial consultants encouraged Solidaire, they were English by the way, to flatten the ground because it was not conducive to shopping. The preservation code of Solidaire and the Lebanese building code would have allowed that to happen, but the architect convinced the developer that it was more important for both the project's integrity and for shopping to maintain the continuity of flow with the surrounding city than to provide smooth continuity inside the project. 
The design of the balloon platform absorbed the slope into a purer geometry of symmetries and overlaps. Even though it was anchored in the specificity of the site, it tried to transcend it without nullifying it. Topography is not the only aspect of the city that the code nullifies. When we presented the project for permit, we also realized that there was no special code for temporary projects and there was no special code for public space. We were treated as if we were presenting a skyscraper. There are other ways in which the code in Lebanon encourages this kind of urbanism that we can call the Beirut normal and helps in carrying that deferral to yet another level. <coughs> we all know the Parisian origin of the Gavari route. The fact that the building goes to a certain height and depending on the width of the street, slopes backwards in order to supposedly allow for light to come into the street. In Lebanon, the Galerie rule applies, but it applies to buildings in order to encourage them to set back from the street. There's a, a small diagram I prepared which shows you that if the width of the street is R1 with the sidewalks, the building code encourages you to go up four times and then with an incline of the Galerie. What happens here, however, is that there is no restriction on street alignment. So the building starts setting back further in order to go taller and to increase the exploitation, especially if you buy property behind. And if you manage to buy two pieces of land, one behind the other, like I showed in the diagram of the voids, then you can go really tall and begin to actually question or challenge the orientation of the street or the front and back condition. This begins to generate conditions like these. This is, in this case, Ashrafiyye, the other hill. And this, you see, is the old street. And then as property gets bought into the depth of the road, the edge of the street sets back beyond recognition in places like this. You can see that this kind of erosion is beginning to take over the existing old fabric, as is happening particularly here in the backlands. <coughs> now, the building code also challenges another aspect of the building, which is its verticality, its face its character, which becomes important for us in our discussion later on. Every floor you get 20% balconies. As a developer, you're going to ask for the maximum 20% balconies. You're also not allowed to trespass the vertical projection of the, of the plan. If you do, that additional shift of enclosed area will act as, uh, will be counted as exploitation. Therefore, inevitably, the way developers work out the city building code is by taking that plan and replicating it vertically, one on top of the other, with an apron of balconies around. This generates a building typology which, even though grows in height when the building code changes, remains the same. There's this kind of condition of sameness that both in plan and in the building typology itself, as it moves, uh, repeats. There's also an interesting condition in Beirut that if you effectively look at the city fabric, the building is made out of one building type. For some reason, the real estate developers have converged on the building typology of the apartment building, which is made out of an entrance space that leads to three areas of the apartment. And that is used for offices, for houses, for uh, hair salons, for industries. Somehow it has proven to them to be the most resilient in terms of its real estate value and flexibility, and they reproduce it all the time. Thanks to this code, therefore, the individuality of the individual building prevails. 
buildings are highly differentiated, that yet they look like each other. This heightened individuality at the parcel level somehow takes away from the collective characteristics of streets and public spaces. This kind of mincing, or the tabuli effect of urbanism, if you allow me this self-orientalizing slip. Uh, this mincing by building code, this differentiation at the very fine grain, is not dissimilar to what takes place in many cities and at many levels in architectural discourse. Increasingly, we are, after all, seeking a heightened articulation of form with a sameness or indeterminacy of program. But are we afraid of such sameness? Deferring the urban decision to the individual architectural acts has ultimately trivialized it, but it has also rendered it reversible, changeable, and deliberated <coughs> at every instance with every architectural intervention. If this act of heightening small differences has generated a sense of sameness within the city, it has nevertheless generated a particular pulse to the city, a pulse that Beirut shares with other cities like Athens, Izmir, Alexandria, and to which I will return at the end. Beirut, however, is somehow not content with sameness. It has found for itself a shortcut out of this dilemma. Initially, the balloon was intended to be a stark yellow ball. But when the client made his budget calculations, he realized that the euro cost of the balloon and its operations could not be compensated by a reasonable ticket price for the balloon ride in <coughs> Lebanon's house. A sponsor had to be found. And in Lebanon, it is typically banks that sponsor, given the solidity of the banking sector and the excess of savings that have risen exponentially, especially since the recession. To be able to fly, the balloon acquired a band. But the band carried the slogan not the name of the bank. This was a compromise to obtain the permit for advertising. <coughs> the story goes, the governor of Beirut, who's a political appointee and who came from the rival political party of Hariri and the rival political party of the mayor and Solidaire at the time. He was the final authority on the advertisement regulation in Beirut. While usually politicians do not get into this level of ephemeral details, he may have found in permitting the banner on the highly visible balloon a way of exerting some power. The redundancies between the role of the governor and mayor, reminiscent of Ottoman rule, continues to fuel many of the political rivalries in Beirut. The governor's excuse was that there was no law to govern advertising on flying objects. He was appealing to the problems of controlling advertisement all over the city which have gone out of hand, simply his hand. When the client politely pointed to the huge banner on the Holiday Inn right <coughs> next to us, the governor said they were breaking the law, but he could not do anything about it. Today, and with the exception of downtown Beirut, there's very little control on how big, where, and how many signs there are in any location. A few historic towns have sought to introduce such standards, but their impact has been rather limited. There is a high demand for advertising, one which has ironically multiplied tenfold since the proliferation of television networks after the war. Lebanon's graphic design and advertisement industries feed the Arab world with images, and they seem to use Beirut's consumer culture as their testing ground. This proliferation of signage has turned every available surface into a potential display surface. Coupled with anonymity and similarity of all the buildings in the city, advertising has become a way to distinguish between buildings. In this way, political campaigns becoming like advertisement. Postmodernism 
Anthony Appiah has told us, has turned everything to a sign, and every sign leads for sale. In many ways, this sign shows how advertisement engages the Lebanese political changes and, um, and precariousness. This was immediately after the Israelis bombed the infrastructure of Beirut, when Johnny Walker <laughs> came in to, to respond to that. Now, architects have not been neutral to this phenomenon. Some have turned their very buildings into billboards of sorts, such as the case in these buildings up here. Uh, many of the buildings in downtown Beirut, before they get built, they have a, uh, a billboard as big as the facade. And when they remove the billboard, you don't really notice if the billboard is still there or not, <laughs> particularly because of the way they look. But also, if you look at this, for example, there are three floors within one arched window, uh, you know, st stacking uh, apartments behind old facades. This is a department store which has the facade of uh, an old uh, caravanserai that has been replicated. Uh, in this case, this is the architecture of Bernard Puri, who has, in a different way, appropriated the elements of the media, such as the highway sign or a projection screen, into his architectural language. In the design of the surfaces of the balloon, we did engage this question, but we used writing on the surface of the building and on the ground to communicate, drawing signage on and out of the surface. And in many ways, we were speaking to the central debates about surface treatment in architecture today. Uh, for example, the chevron pattern of the surface becoming arrows to develop a certain language that relates to the port, the heliport, the airport, and this balloon port. And uh, we used asphalt on the interior. We, we ran out of money, so we asphalted the interior. And we used writing on the asphalt as a way of, again, re-invoking re re the tarmac. Uh, removing some of the wood panels, which were incidentally the formwork, the wood formwork was used inside, uh, again, as a way of creating windows and arrows. This is the exit sign. So we're also appealing to a sign language of advertisement. And interestingly, advertisement discovered the balloon project and used it as a backdrop for fashion magazine uh, displays. Increasingly, and against the postmodern tendencies of elevating the local to a finality, architects have been leaping over the immediacy of their context to speak to the world through the mediation of the discipline. Yet, the discipline of architecture upholds differentiation as an inherent good. Herein lies another tension that Beirut has resolved also a bit too quickly by banging its head into the ground and by going inside. International style reporters, and they are the biggest tourists in Beirut these days, record the wealth, exuberance, and differentiation of interior spaces in the city and the way that they replicate somehow the world. I'm showing this view of the reconstructed street of downtown Beirut as an example of an interior. And this is a big department store, the rooftop of which, again, exemplifies this idea of replicating the world, places where it's insular controlled, but from, which, from where you can project back onto the world. This is where these reporters find the cosmopolitanism they came looking for. Even though their success, their location, depends on vast social differences. Yet speaking to the world from inside these imagined worlds could ultimately generate models, ways of projecting how things could be otherwise. If we could only calibrate how these interiors can leak to the outside. Many unusual qualities have come out of this leading of the factors that shape the urban spaces. 
just as a way of summarizing, we talked about the vitality of voids, the heightened differentiation that produces an evenness of spaces, the treatment of space as surface, the emptiness of the public spaces, if not their absence, and the interiority, the graphic interiority of the city's urbanism. At one level, we can, and we often do, dismiss these qualities as utterly undesirable. However, at another level, they can be read as a reflection of the mercantilist ethos of the Levant, <coughs> one that has shaped its behavior in the long durée, as it were, and that must have shaped its cities along the way. Is this, then, a long duration of constant change? It may be coincidental that Fernand Brodel developed his theory of the long durée around the study of the Mediterranean. But the image of the Mediterranean city does resonate here. We have an overture towards the sea, a lax relationship with the countryside, a fine grain of mixture, rich private sector, poor public sector. Some qualities of the Mediterranean do not hold here. Specifically, Brodel's idea of a synchronically unfolding history, history here seems to be getting cleared every day, and secondly, the model of small interdependent communities that link to the countryside, to ethnicities, and that defy the self-containment of the city. Now, this is critical here because I'm arguing that this may be the case politically, and this has been the case that many people wanted to see when they looked at Beirut. But I want to propose that the shape of the city really does not display that connection to the countryside, nor to those ethnicities that inhabit it. The general feel, and many of the style reporters here would also confirm, is Mediterranean. It may be difficult to deny the strong presence of the Big Blue, but the question now begs itself. Have I, after all of this, simply performed a leap from one set of stereotypes about Beirut's exceptionality to another? Now, as in the Istanbul Urban Age last November, I evoke here again Michael Hertzfeld, anthropologist Michael Hertzfeld's warning that stereotypes are to be taken seriously because the people they are applied to believe in them. Perhaps in the end, I am simply a self-perpetuating Mediterranean stereotype, one that believes in the yearning for distant shores of Cavafi and Pagnol, and I'm quoting here from George Mustaki, in the beautiful summer that is not afraid of food. But thankfully, there are many other Mediterraneans. The Mediterranean that is most compelling here is that of historian David Abulafia, who speaks of distant shores with the frequency of communication between them. What is most pertinent in Abulafia's proposal is that the Mediterranean is a model that could be applied to the world. The increasing sameness within Beirut and between Beirut and the rest of the world no doubt points to the dissolution of place and to the acceleration of development to the point where we can now anticipate a world moving in a real estate development sink, especially after the last recession and the global risks <coughs> is generated. These global risks include security and economic vulnerability that tie Beirut's patterns to those of the world and bring them sometimes to the point of brinkmanship and collapse. So the continuity between the normal and the pathological could be described this way. Perhaps, as some argue, in order to speak to the world, that Beirut violently reacts to the world in order to make itself heard. But these also include the environmental risks that J.R. McNeil, a historian, has historicized through changes in the Mediterranean environment and settlements, and which Beirut has been experiencing and is beginning to project back onto the world. <coughs> we ought to think again about whether this condition of sameness in the world or to the world is a sign of poverty of form or of untapped richness, a new source of inspiration for urbanism and for architecture. 
This sameness that I'm anticipating is not done. I hope so. It points to the fact that we are all worldly. And in this case, I'm referring to the worldliness of Edward Said, but also to that of Costas Axelos. That we work to link to the world from where we are, to achieve a sense of the totality, and this is different from totalization, and to anticipate a city world before and beyond globalization that flows with Heraclitus's river, where identities could be constantly constructed and constructed in part by design. Thank you very much. study Tripoli because at least the extension between the MENA and the old city uh, is an example of where the modern development is actually better regulated than Beirut. How they arrived at that is not very clear to me, but at some point the city must have developed in a coherent way at a sort of short period of time that Khalid Ziyadi writes about in his books, but I would like to know, learn them more in terms of building code. Uh, that makes that modern skyline of the city rather agreeable. We all don't like our own cities, so you might not like Tripoli for exactly the things I like about Tripoli. <laughs> but I would like to spend more time uh, looking at Tripoli because I, I think there's some lessons to be learned for Beirut from Tripoli. But the notion that your city has a master plan is something which hangs in the air. Yeah. Oh, that Beirut has a master yes. plan. Beirut? Tell us about it. Beirut has, uh, <coughs> if we look at I mean, the, not, the downtown aside, there is a master plan for a greater metropolitan Beirut, one that has regulated land uses, uh, transportation networks, and uh, has also delimited growth. Did, did I miss something in my week there? There's public transport? Highways and public transport, ah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, you, okay. there's, there's no public transportation. I didn't see one bus. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I am referring to a 1986 uh, schema directeur de la région de Beirut, which was done in Paris mm -hmm. with some Lebanese consultants. That's how we usually do our bus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, that plan falls again in another very long tradition of understanding planning to be limits of growth, land use control, and roads. The rest is deferred to the building code. And I think it's that transition between what is we, what we consider to be regulated by the plan and what gets deferred to the code that is the most problematic in terms of the development of the city. Not the lax execution or uh, implementation of the codes or the master plan. I might come back to that. Just a quick question. Uh, 
who you are. They get 
uh, organized into different goods that go to different caravanserais. The merchants of Beirut come, negotiate the prices, and then carry them up into the specialized souks of the city, which fans out to connect to the different residential neighborhoods of the city. It's a very uh, graphic uh, way of organization. This uh, souk has been there since Hellenistic, if not before. Archaeological digs on the site have proven that the alignment of the streets matches with that of the different layers. Uh, the souks continued to act that way into the 20s and 30s. Uh, many of them in this area here, you had the leather goods in this area, you had the textiles. Not, there wasn't much craftsmanship connected to them, with the exception of a few, including the jewelry, which was not here, but was elsewhere. Uh, but there were definitely places of trade. And there were places of trade for the city. And then uh, pl place for trade where many of the residential areas that grew outside downtown Beirut after the turn of the century would still come and shop. Uh, it was really during the late French period and early independence that new shopping areas started emerging elsewhere, which were more modern shopping areas. The souks started declining. Many of the businesses, like uh, many of the souks around the region, that were more the sweatshops and workshops there moved out and they were filled in by warehouses. By the beginning of the war, uh, it was not considered to be a very thriving war. The Civil War. The Civil the War. Yeah. Uh, but it still maintained a vitality as the place where everybody would go still. Some souks, not all of them, were highly distinguished. Some others were very popular. They still maintained the specialization of trades, but they lost the connection to production at that point. Uh, during the war, many of them moved out to camp on, cert on certain public areas, public streets, uh, in the different parts of the city, east and west. And it was a major phenomenon to see them uh, taking over the street and uh, creating sheds there. Uh, but slowly, that got diffused and got formalized into shopping areas around the city. In, in a way, consistent with what happened just before the war, which is the growth of these new regional re uh, retail uh, sectors. By then, somehow the continuity of the practices, the presence of the same characters <coughs> after 20 years got lost. And so when Solidaire decided to recover the downtown, uh, they built it, they first planned it to be a destination so that it would be a place where you would build it first, build the parking underneath it for 4,000 something cars so that that would service the area that they wanted to reserve, preserve, which is for the most part, the area that the Ottomans is, and the French even. So they chose the French fabric to be the one to preserve. We, we know somehow why. Uh, because of the political problems, the souks were deferred until much later. They only last year opened after 15 years in the works. And uh, what they look like is a shopping mall, a very exclusive shopping mall which replicates the shops, almost one by one of the shopping mall I showed as well. It was an easy way up. They did not want to think about how to subsidize, how to bring together groups of retailers. Even the jewelers who were supposed to come together got to the disagreement with Solidaire because they were charging them the same prices they were charging Dior and Louis And so till today, it's rather anemic as a retail area. They say that it's because they haven't finished the rest of the area rather. The rest is not good. What is it called in fact? The Souks of Beirut. 
does the architect do education and still have the tools to engage in this process? <coughs> At least the way that the, how do you say, the relay happens between master planning, or let's say real estate development culture, planning and architecture, I would say that in Beirut more than any other city, the architects have the power to shape more of the city than other, than other places. And that has a lot to do with the kind of deferred practices that go on. But uh, ultimately, because of the lack of coordination between one building and the other at the minute scale, because the building code is written from the parcel out rather than from the limits in. There is no possibility to imagine a certain urbanism that extends beyond the individual building. So the level of differentiation that it allows is so high that actually everything looks the same. This kind of mincing at the smallest scale, you can have very different buildings next to each other, but ultimately the fabric does not make the building stand out. That's why they resort to the interiority of the buildings as the place where they mark their difference and uniqueness much more. And so, in a way, there's a, I'm proposing that the urbanism in Lebanon gets produced by a, a process of deferral all the way down to the graphic designer of the billboard and the interior decorator of the lobbies and the nightclubs. Could you expand a little bit on that? Because the one word which didn't feature highly, except you did talk about land values very importantly early, early on, was the word money. It seems to me that uh, Beirut, not unlike London or certain parts of London, I'm thinking obviously of the, uh, the hotter parts of the real estate sector of London, the city of London, Canary Wharf, or more valuable sites, money seems to talk quite a lot in Beirut. I mean, many, many, many of the um, ways you describe the city we sort of understand, but ultimately it's got to do with maximizing and, and very, very high land values. Yes. Which has been, which has continued. Very high return values on real estate. Yeah. I would like to study carefully the differences between different cities in terms of real estate returns. But in Beirut, because the mortgage sector is very conservative, because there's no property tax, because there's no tax on vacant property, uh, because the cost of construction compared to the prices that you pay is minimal, labor is still very cheap. Real estate development is really a very luring market. And because the buying power, particularly of areas like downtown Beirut, is from monies that are made overseas, where the income is higher, and therefore the return in Beirut will yield much more. If I'm right, it's a closed shop. Basically, you have to be Lebanese to own property? No, no. It's open. Completely open? Yes, completely open. And as a, as a result of that, the market is quite artificial. In its, uh, in anyone can build anything anywhere? It can buy. Anyone can buy and build. Yes. It's interesting. Because the, the now, there's obviously has a whole discussion has about recently? What happens is that if a particular group of people buy property of a certain scale, it has to go to the government for approval, the central government for approval. No. So that's true. And therefore, when many people of a particular ethnicity or nationality buy, it makes it to the news and there's an uprising. But the interesting aspect of, real, of money here is that you could make so much money out of real estate that money no longer is the problem with real estate. And so there are other issues that can be the same. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, may I ask you? I mean, is, you said Tell us who you are. Okay. My name is Mr. Bob. I'm working for uh, the 
sustainable development issue. Uh, that's what I'm a little bit concerned about, the sustainability of the seed of the master plan. Now, my question is, uh, what are the environmental problems that is facing? I think it's called the Mediterranean. Don't think that should we move it more towards a more less intelligent or smart city where you have to keep more in consideration the global issue, like the climatology or the energy, and this is typical of Mediterranean cities. So a model, so what is your, uh, let's say, suggestion about a Mediterranean city should be developed? If I, I'm going to try and avoid your question because it's really not my area. But if I to link it to some of the issues that I'm talking about, I would say, for example, that the disrespect to topography is beginning to generate major, major environmental problems. Major problems in terms of questions of uh, water, uh, what you call drainage, in the in the city's infrastructure. Uh, problems in terms of the maintenance of the uh, water table, uh, shoring has become a major uh, risk in the city. Uh, so that <coughs> generates a lot of problems. The heightened exploitation, which is not going back to, even though it starts with the gabarit, but the heightened exploitation that is increasing is not measuring, again, its impact on uh, access to sun, etc. even though many of the codes were built on the early modernist codes of the gabarit, introducing sun, uh, distance for light, etc. But they magnify the exploitation to the point where this is becoming a caricature. It's no longer taking into consideration questions of light or access to light. Uh, one could also argue that the introduction of balconies and the increasing of depth of the building footprint is increasing is, is creating serious environmental problems on the interiors of the buildings. So I'm talking about it from the architectural scale, yeah. obviously. But uh, I, I want to ask you, I want to answer the question also at the urban level in, in a few places. That, Beirut is not an industrial city, and therefore the degree of air pollution that industry generates compared to what the city uh, produces in terms of is negligible. However, the level of car ownership and congestion is very high. Uh, so <coughs> we come back to the question of public transportation and how Beirut deals with public transportation in terms of the multiplication of means of transportation rather than the reduction. Uh, another problem in terms of the environmental conditions of the city has a lot to do with its congestion, with its density. And again, I wanted to talk about the density of Beirut because it's a relatively dense city. In 85 square kilometers, you have a million and a half people living. Uh, now, that could be seen to be environmentally exemplary in the sense that we are creating ways in which we can increase the density of the city uh, and clear the mountainside. But we're not doing this at the expense of that. We're also clearing the countryside for further development. And one of the major reasons that the real estate market continues to thrive in the way that I'm describing is because the real estate pro the, the area is very limited. And therefore, it constantly generates that. The, the mountain in the back and the sea in the front creates such high pressure on the, dense, on the city that it constantly rebuilds itself.
some some characteristics which are more sustainable than others. I could actually announce topography is the so you could be louder. Right? Topography is the biggest one for, for all aspects of engineering. Even if, if you take it away from drainage and the way climate affects topography, just the construction issues involved. Especially when you look at sustainability as a longer agenda, using your word resilience, as we keep changing the type of buildings, as material get better, so on and so on. The more you fought against the topography at the origin of the development, the bigger the problem gets all the time. Drainage is just one of them, water level rising. And increasingly we're getting that problem. The construction problem. Drainage problems are major. This means also the economy is going down, productivity of economy. Environment go down, the productivity of economy go down, see that as a whole. That link, that's a system. I'm trying to think of ways in which the environmental consciousness comes into the picture in discussions about urbanism in Beirut. And it's interesting, probably not unlike other places, that it is clients who are beginning to bring it into the picture. It's not regulations. We do not have environmental regulations. We do not have a special code for environmental or sustainability issues. But it is clients that are beginning to market their buildings, their new developments, as being green, one way or the other. And in terms of the master planning of the city, uh, there have been, from the 1980s, even before, statements made about the preservation of the environment. Uh, but they were more preservationist in terms of their uh, strategy. Therefore, trying to preserve forests, trying to create limits of growth, uh, rather than built into the building code or into the master planning itself, uh, techniques for making it more sustainable. Anyway, again, the multiplication of roads, which results in the multiplication of cars, is very much part of the practice of master planning. And it's also, it comes back to questions of development, because development is the corollary of the road. And, and it brings that back into the whole discussion. Particularly around the first master plan, 
when people saw in public space a potential for the release of certain frustrations at the political level. Uh, people have explained it in different ways. They've explained it by saying, well, it's the street that is the public space. And we talked about the street in different ways today. Uh, others have explained it in a very strange way, saying that the countryside is so close, and everybody in Beirut, particularly the lower classes, come from the countryside, <coughs> that they do not feel the necessity for the clean air in the city. When they want clean air, they go outside. And that has been the practice of many of the schools in Lebanon. They build the schools outside of the countryside as a way of cleaning the lungs of the kid during the day and then sending them back into the city. <laughs> so one could look at, I mean, I'm not going to answer it at the level of uh, what, what does the master planning propose in terms of public space, because master planning never gets into that level. It delegates it to the localities, and localities in general are about increasing development. There's never uh, a locality that does not want to increase the development. But what I wanted to say there is that uh, there is an increasing interest on the part of communities in their rights to the city, which is something that did not exist before. And I find that to be refreshing. What that will yield in terms of improvement of conditions of public space, uh, building regulations, I don't know. But there's also another thing that is happening, which is an increasing, uh, how do you call it, uh, that the taxes are no longer centralized, but they are being given to the devolution. decentralized devolution of taxation, which might generate a different kind of regulation at the level of the countries. Given the, uh, you are. Oh, sorry. Uh, Michael Safier from the Development Planning Unit and Development Planning Associates. Um, given that the Eastern Mediterranean uh, is a, an area where, unfortunately, a number of cities in the Balkans, um, Cyprus, and uh, Levant um, have been the sites of a rather serious degree of conflict urbanism, I'm interested to get your take on. What has all the things you've been talking about, particularly in terms of architecture, landscape, public space, and so on, uh, have to the question of how uh, groups of people can actually um, learn to coexist and share share space in the city? I don't want to take on that responsibility. I've <laughs> started out by thinking myself, immediately after the end of the war, that there is a major role that urban designers and planners and architects can play in reconciliation. Uh, and indeed, if we look at a map of any area of conflict like Beirut, this zone here, which is between the Muslim side and the Christian side, is the site of conflict, and therefore becomes the site of reconciliation. Uh, everybody talks about it, there's a need for creating a public space, places of gathering so that people can realize that the other is not as alien as they <coughs> feel when we don't see them, and all of that. We should improve on public space. We should place public spaces strategically. We should be able to disseminate uh, visibility in the city and legibility so that people are aware of where they are rather than in hidden places. But the fact that all of what I'm saying is going to in any way contribute to the uh, avoidance of reversion to violence, it's not clear. And I, that responsibility I will not contribute. So in this sense, I mean, when you were talking earlier, and one of the many 
theoretical statements you were making touched on this issue of environmental, environmental determinism. And though you said, if I understood you correctly, you certainly believe in a link between the social and the spatial, you have some qualms about that. And that probably <coughs> reflects partly this discussion, uh, but also your practice as an architect. You know, how much can you actually do? Much of the architecture that has tried to reflect that, if I show you that tower, very silly tower by Jean Nouvel in Beirut, where he wanted to reflect the war, and therefore he took the window pattern and made it look like bullet holes. Uh, <laughs> other places, you know, turned the architecture from yeah, bunker aesthetic uh, to uh, you know, sandbag aesthetic, all of that. It's, it's fine to commemorate, to maintain a certain image of that so that it doesn't go away. But I don't find that to be very productive. I find the novel in that that's why I refer to the novel, much more productive, productive in its relationship to the war because it's much more therapeutic in putting out certain uh, stories that we can tell about the city that historians don't want to tell and politicians do not want to tell. Novelists are becoming very rigorous chroniclers of the situation <coughs> in Lebanon. As architects, can we do that in this kind of fluidity that we are uh, constantly immersed, I don't think so. But therefore, I mean, are you arguing that there are some cultures, some conditions, as well, uh, where form is far more determinant than others? Uh, are you mean that in this particular context, if I can say something about Beirut, is that it is very uh, skeptical of edification. Uh, now, on the other hand, uh, the way that architects have dealt with the world, I haven't talked about it here in terms of the iconographies, uh, has been quite interesting. I mean, we have early on, especially at the end of the war, uh, created this kind of reliquary of pieces of this old city, taking them, appropriating them, mixing them, putting them together in a kind of what Svetlana Bond calls a, a reflexive nostalgia. Not a reconstructive nostalgia, but a reflexive where we try to, through a kind of bricolage, reshape what we remember was the past of the city. And that practice in itself has been understood to be therapeutic, that we come to terms with the relics that we've created ourselves. Interestingly, it was the warlords who first started that, collecting Roman ruins as a way of you know, elevating the status of ruins that they created themselves. But uh, So that, as a practice, I think is a very interesting one. But I am wary, and this is probably a bit of an overreaction on my part, of the practices of identity construction through the war that we have as artists and architects indulged in, I think overindulged in, uh, thanks to the interest of international markets in this. Lebanese uh, video artists, painters, uh, photographers, focus primarily on uh, the question of identity and reflecting East-West relationships, or how the Lebanese, when you go there, you have to see the world. The, the international reporters, the art curators, when they go to Lebanon, they are not interested in that very important artist in Beirut who has been having a 20-year-long conversation with Pierre Bonin. They don't want to look at them. They want to look at the guy who uh, takes bullet holes and turns them into uh, paintings of some sort. And I'm bored with that. <laughs> I'm going to come to Klaus for the. Is there any other question in a moment? Come to Klaus. There's a lady, not you, and he's lady behind you. <laughs> 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 that doesn't matter at all. <laughs>
tell us who you are, apart from any of your new boss. Um, I'm I'm an architect, so I work at APC. Um, I just had a question regarding housing and the master plan. And it has to do, for instance, um, how did housing actually relate to the old master plan and the effect of the civil war? Uh, people moved out of their homes, moved back, and obviously like, new developments happened. And how did that actually affect in terms of like, people's perception of the public space, their personal space? Did they move back to the same neighborhoods? I mean, what happened after that, actually? Uh, are you asking me about specifically social housing or housing in general? <coughs> housing in general. Okay. Uh, Housing is what prevails in terms of the building fabric in Lebanon. As I mentioned, there's no other building type than the apartment building. Only recently have they started building specifically office buildings or maybe school buildings are a different type, but many apartment buildings become schools very readily. Uh, and therefore, <coughs> what I'm trying to distinguish is between housing as a form of inhabitation or practices of inhabiting buildings and housing as a building stock. The building stock is produced out of all of that and necessarily replicates itself because of the speculative demands for a building stock that can shift in terms of land use readily from the ground floor to the top floor or vice versa. There's a very interesting play uh, at the early Civil War called the Penthouse of Mirna. Mirna was the uh, madame who had the penthouse during the pre-war years and uh, pre you know, had her uh, Salon and boudoir and brothel on the top floor. And there were families in the middle, there were businesses on the lower floors, and there was on the street uh, shops. But during the war, everybody had to go down to the uh, shelter in the basement. And all of a sudden, that kind of stratification that existed and has come back today in terms of hierarchies of uses and exclusivities were mixed in the basement. One would have, and I wanted to, that's why I was looking at that play, uh, the, the roof of Vienna, to see whether that kind of reformulation as a result of the war could affect the post-war uh, rethinking of housing. But it hasn't. We have come back to these practices of stratification where the penthouse is still very exclusive or uh, excluded in some ways. The middle is basically residential and the bottom floors are much more the negotiation between the street activity and the, and the rest. And the basements have gone deeper. <laughs> well, we need to wind up, so. Yeah, um, Klaus Bode, I'm an environmental engineer. Um, the subject that always fascinates me, and you, you brought the Aussie presentation, you called it under the part articulation regulation, is actually the subject regulation. Um, the sort of gray area, when is too little too much? And um, particularly environmental issues in, let's call it in the more Nordic countries, um, regulation to a certain fact has kind of worked to a point. When I look in London with the regulation in terms of certain environmental objective, they believe it works, but it's actually backfiring when you look at the products. It's not really delivering what it's supposed to deliver. Now, my question to you is, in terms of, I've understood where there's a lot of deferral to build income for master plan, although the two need to coexist. Is the issue in terms of what is your experience and what do you, that exists today and where do you think it should go in terms of 
is there too little regulation or too much? Because too much can be counterproductive. Because we also like to go back and how is it rooted in the Mediterranean culture? Uh, I feel there is too much. But I also feel that the point at which the relay happens is the wrong point. Right. That certain attributes could be handled by articulation more yeah. in order to decrease the regulation. <coughs> I'm saying that reluctantly because I somehow like what is going on in Beirut, or at least the potentials of what is going on in Beirut. And I think we ought to experiment in recalibrating that relationship because it might maintain some of the vitality of Beirut mm. without taking much away from it. While bringing back a sense that that participation on the part of the individual builders in the shaping of the city yeah. is more effective yeah. rather than counterproductive. That the possibility that I, as an architect of one building, can produce something that can be picked up by the person next to me through some guidelines that are imposed, yeah. but allow us the freedom to interpret the way that the building code still does today is full of amazing potentials. Mm. And this, I, this idea that also the city is always becoming, like the, the kind of uh, river of Heraclitus, that we can build that, is, is fascinating. And you're hopeful that it can go that way? I just think that these are much more interesting things to learn from Beirut sure. than uh, you know, us and them, uh, exactly. uh, East and West, uh, hedonism and the war. I, I don't think you can, be, you can grow up in Beirut and uh, believe that regulation is somehow a good thing. It's not in his DNA. And interestingly, from what you've been saying, it was not in the DNA of the city. I mean, you're trying to describe, and it's a very difficult thing to many in the room, been trying to do this for years, which is how how do you describe a city which has no obvious structure, no obvious structure, there is a structure, uh, how do you describe uh, the fact that this mass of, um, to a degree, unplanned buildings with uses, which actually, as you say, only have one use, but then become many other things, you know, how, how, do you, how do you describe that and what can we learn from it, and I think that we're all struggling with that issue. I was um, reminded of a phrase that a friend of mine, you know, Wilfred Wang, Used when describing sort of the, the background of a city, and he called it radical normality. That actually cities are made up of uh, normal stuff, and, and uh, actually to be sometimes very radical is just to create normal stuff. And I think that a lot of it was that what was terrifying behind your question is that actually the regulation will turn it into something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, exactly. This, 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 this regulation, given land values and everything else can actually transform the DNA of the city over time. I think that would be a terrifying prospect. Mm -hmm. uh, the distinction is special is about it. The distinction that could be helpful for us here is one that comes from George Conkian, who made the Norman continuous sort of pathological in his study of the history of science. But Conkian proposes that instead of talking about the normal, we can talk about the normatization. Yeah. What is it? How do we, we how are we able to produce norms in the forms that we make? in order for them to constantly adapt to change. Mm. So that the production of norms through the exercise of being normal is what is going on in Beirut, I think, or could be going on in Beirut. That's what I'm looking for. Before I thank Hashim for a very resilient talk, also in response to the question, let me remind you that uh, LSE Cities and Urban Age, also through the Hilbert Arab Foundation, will be hosting over the next uh, month a 
series of talks, the mayors, two mayors, first and second of June, the mayor of, um, of um, Copenhagen, uh, and then on the second, the mayor of uh, Mexico City, who will be coming to talk about what's happening here. Rem Kohlhaas is speaking on interventions from his practice of Office of Metropolitan Architecture on the 21st of June, and Stephen Graham is talking about sort of divided cities on the 7th of June. So I hope you and others come to those talks. But returning to the issue of resilience, uh, I said at the beginning that we have an educator, a theorist, and a practitioner. You didn't talk about much about your work, but 